Hello, Dr. Mario here, and welcome back to another episode of the Always Hope Podcast, a production of Will Wood's Faith and Marriage. This is part two of my conversation about the lay vocation with Dr. Tom Neal. If you missed part one, click on the link in the show description. We pick up right where we left off and talk about the gift and challenges of being a lay person who is employed by the church. And we end this epic conversation by having an honest dialogue about how the laity should respond appropriately to the recent church scandal. I hope that you have enjoyed these episodes and the show as a whole. And please remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. Always Hope is found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. All right, let's get into it. I really do want for the for our focus here to shift, if we may, to talk a little bit about the ministerial side of the laity. Okay, we've done a wonderful job expanding and talking about the secular dimension of sure. the lay vocation, but the ministerial dimension of the lay vocation. I'll share a story uh, sure. that I have. So Kristen and I, uh, we got married, uh, and right after we got married, we did our two years of missionary work. Uh, we worked in a with the community called the most uh, the Holy Servants of the Most. The, sorry, the the servants of the most holy trinity. My, yes. my mind is, is, is flying, firing up right now. Uh, and one of the priests of that order that we worked with uh, was Father Dennis Berry, who was a holy, a great man, holy man, oh. a holy, holy man. We were, it was a privilege to work with him for the two years that we were doing missionary work in a very rural community in Alabama, in Southern Alabama. Uh, we worked with, uh, with, yeah, um, poverty. Um, I saw poverty in a way that I hadn't before in the United States. Um, but it was a real gift just to be there. Uh, to to serve the poor, to serve and work in communion, you know, communion with with Father Dennis and his mission there at the parish. Mm-hmm. Well, one day we were having a, an impromptu kind of offhand conversation about uh, vocations and the crisis in vocations, particularly the religious vocations and the clerical state and mm-hmm. the number dwindling. Since it's no surprise to anybody that the numbers have gone down since the fifties and sixties, as you'd mentioned, when it was kind of in its quote unquote heyday. Um. So I was saying this to Father Dennis, just like, hey, you know, like, man, this is a problem or whatever that, you know, people aren't being called as much to the priesthood or religious life. And as a priest, his his answer was was just beautiful. He said, we have to trust in providence in all of this. I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, listen, like, if the mission of the Vatican Council was to embolden, one of the missions, one of the many missions of the Second Vatican Council was to redefine and embolden the lay state, both in the secular but even in the ministerial dimension, then the only way that the laity could step into those ministerial roles is if there was a vacancy for them to step into. And the only way that that lacuna could even emerge is if the vocations to the clerical state had to, had to dwindle. And so this is God's providence working in all of this. If God is the one who calls, then he would certainly call less in this time so that we could actualize the Second Vatican Council's mission to the laity to step into those places in ministry. Um, so thinking about that, what words of encouragement do you have for That's people excellent. like us who, sure. who do work in ministry um, and trying to find our place? Because sometimes we do struggle and in, in, in sometimes there isn't that clarity or we do find the competition or the struggle of, I work for the church, but I'm not a priest and I, I have to find the balance. I have to remind my priest's boss sometimes that I'm not a priest, right? Sure, <laughs> you know, like of course. that I'm still a lay person who's working for the church. And, and I know there's a ton of people who serve the church that really do struggle 
with finding the balance between serving sure. and still living the lay life as as a family. So thoughts? Yeah, you have there. no, that that's that's a lot of, a lot of profound uh, profound insight you just put out there just to begin with. So I think one of the things just to, to start off with is is considering the, the transformation in church culture that happened after the Second Vatican Council in terms of the engagement of laity and leadership, collaborative leadership with the clergy. The transformation, really radical, is, is, is an appropriate word. Of course, that was the 60s word for all the cultural revolutions, but in the church it certainly was. And because of that, because you have such a sudden, kind of a sudden change in church culture, not only because of the decline of uh, actual clergy and religious who carry out the labor in the vineyard and the need to bring in lay people to do that work without those people uh, there, there in place to do the work themselves. Uh, besides that, there's just a whole culture shift that has to happen in Catholicism where we, we, we think about, A, we think about lay people who feel called to work and collaborate in the church's inner life and her mission uh, in a close way. We see them as true partners, not as rivals with clergy or kind of parallel clergy, but as true, true collaborators who bring their own gifts and charisms into the work um, that fills out the, the work of the body of Christ and, and kind of give, gives it a much more rich complexion. So, so the, there, there's that. Um, but I think there, there's also, as you as you indicated there, the need to develop uh, a culture in which the distinctiveness and uniqueness of the laity's calling to blend both secular life and ministerial life to, in their in their worlds. You know, because most laity who work for the church have families, and many of them have jobs as well outside of the church itself to support themselves. So that kind of bridge between the two worlds. So I think I say all that because the the transformations that have happened in the last 50 years are so radical, we have to be patient with the fact that we are the ones that are the frontiers men and women that are forging uh, forging this new culture and kind of setting new standards and, and asking new questions that have never been asked for. And so, and so are facing frustrations and challenges and ambiguities that are just natural to something that is really in its infancy and the church is really new. So um, whenever I think about my own frustrations or challenges as a, as a layman trying to work in the church and, and do it in a, in a constructive and fruitful way in collaborating with clergy, I, I have to be realistic and patient in seeing that that there's there's a lot that yet has to be done to to grow this in, in, in into maturity and that I have a role to contribute um, in helping to build that. So I have to bring my own view, my own genius as a layperson into this and say, this is what I see. Bring that to the leadership um, in the church and, and conversation, and hopefully we can develop something better and leave something better for future generations that follow me and you and others who worked in the church that we've helped to kind of you know construct that culture. So I think there's a, a heavy dose of of patience and and kind of forward looking hope uh, and seeing that we you know we're prophets of a future that is not our own in many ways. So I, I think that that has to be the case, and also just to be encouraged by the fact. I mean, looking around on the ground at the extraordinary gifts among laymen and women in the last, especially the last 20 years as I've watched, just exploding on the ground, particularly in the church's teaching work, prophetic work, the work of teaching, preaching, evangelizing uh, out there, just extraordinary stuff, the movements out there, right? Uh, and, and the need for, uh, for, for, for that to be encouraged and to be formed uh, and to be purified. Um, and I think it's also, Mario, uh, obviously I'm, I'm just thinking as I go along here, but, but I'm thinking about the fact that, uh, that the need that we have 
um, in the church as lay people who are, who are kind of working in collaboration with the ordained and with religious, of course, is to make sure that we don't kind of contribute to, in the midst of our frustrations and, and, and dealing with all this, to a kind of a cynical culture, which is very much the culture of, of, of our contemporary society in so many ways relating to the leadership and cynicism with leadership. We don't develop that kind of culture, kind of cynical or, look, we're going to take this into our own hands or we kind of wash our hands of the failures of, leader, of leadership but rather that this is our church and this collaborative work that Jesus has called us to is meant to be a mutual purification that we and those we work with and under the leadership of um, are together purified by our working together. And, and that kind of love and work together is tough stuff, you know, uh, can be very frustrating um, kind, of, kind of work. And, 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 and if we see that, if the goal in the end is not that, that I accomplish my own agenda or get done what I, I plan to do in the beginning. And, and if I don't get it done the way I want, I'm going to be angry and bitter and frustrated. But that if the goal ultimately is sanctity, is that we all uh, move towards sanctity and holiness in the end, um, then the way that I will approach this kind of collaborative work with clergy uh, will be much more, at least in my experience, constructive and positive and life-giving um, than the kind of things I see that can happen when we get frustrated with the failures of those uh, who are ordained in leadership in the church, um, trying to work out, you know, the, the way that this collaboration on the ground happens. So you spoke about the need for patience and yes. a recognition that we are trailblazers. Yes. And, uh, you know, emerging, forging something new uh, that just really hasn't been done in a long time in the church. Uh, while at the same time, part of that is, is resisting cynicism and despondency. And so clinging to the virtue of hope, uh, which is you know, the theme of the show, certainly. Is there anything specific else that you would want to offer for a man or a woman who works in the church in terms of, or just even generally this, this relationship between, the, if we can say it this way, resistantly to this, but I'm, just for the context of our conversation, the ministerial kind of laity, I know that's not exactly the word I'm looking for, but laity who work in the church um, and the clerical state. You know, is there, is there more that can be done? Any particular thoughts or suggestions that you have from either side of that equation or conversation, both from the clerical and the lay side, that, that could help make things better? Sure. It's a great question. My goodness. So, so many particular things come to mind. I, I guess one of the first ones, Mario, is, is, is approaching this work in the mode of discernment, which I know you had a podcast recently with Father Rafferty about. Uh, in other words, that that the work we do is 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 a work that's based on vocation and calling and discerning what the Holy Spirit is asking of us. And I think so many times what happens in our church because of the pressure uh, that exists for producing products um, in, in 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 a very high paced, um, stressful world is that we just get practical and pragmatic and say, hey, let me get some people who can do this work and. The work that's done oftentimes is not filled with a spirituality, with a, a, a lively life of prayer. Um, in other words, that, that Jesus himself is not the center of what we do. It's, ju it's just very business-oriented. It's very pragmatic, and it can get very cold and sterile, and that therefore it fosters the kinds of vices um, and challenges that come when you don't bring Christ into the center of what you do. So... Uh, and, and this has been my experience. You know, so many priests out there are such extraordinary, good, uh, self-giving men. 
But I, I think one of the things in Catholic cler- clerical culture, in my experience, is the reticence of, of sharing a spirituality with the people you work with, kind of having that kind of spiritual intimacy, you might say, with your fellow employees, with your fellow clergy, whoever it is, being kind of open and explicit. And I found that that the environments where ministry collaboration tends to thrive the most, and this is not a simplistic formula, but it's true, is where there is an intense and shared sense of the spiritual life between clergy and laity, and that that's the center of the work. Um, I did, years ago, I did a, a retreat for business managers or parish, parishes in s- certain part of the country, I won't mention, but for business managers and parishes, and they had never had a retreat done for them before. So it was, you know, kind of a neat thing for me to be able to do with them. And and at a certain part of the day, I I given them time to pray and I talked about vocation and, and how, how the serving in the church should build our faith up and deepen our our intimacy with Christ. And, and we had a sharing time middle of the part of the day. And, and and what came out, generally speaking, was a lot of a lot of pain, uh, because they felt when they came to work in the church, they were hoping to grow more in their faith and encounter people who were really on fire with the Lord, who wanted to share that kind of faith in the workplace as well as in you know in the work with the people of the parish. But they found that it was actually not. It was very businesslike. It was very sterile. It was very cold in that sense. It didn't that that spirituality didn't permeate. And for them, that was a tremendous poverty and pain. And so I think for priestly leadership and lay leadership both to take on the commitment to make sure that a living, vibrant, spiritual life animates the work and and, and, and comes into it, I think that is a game changer. And although there's a thousand other things that need to be done for good, effective, collaborative leadership, et cetera, and to, to make that flourish and all of that, I think having that kind of approach brings life uh, and changes the perspective of everyone uh, in the midst. And it prevents, in my experience, Mario, it prevents cynicism. (laughs) Because when you have Christ crucified and risen in the center of everything, he who on the cross never lost his wonder and never was cynical on the cross, if he's there in the middle of it, uh, it helps you to retain that same perspective where you see possibility for redemption even in the darkest places. So I guess... Those are very general points, but I guess those are the ones on my heart the most. It's beautiful. I mean, because I think sometimes we do forget that we get into this business mindset, which is just it's just getting work done. And there's a place where work just needs to get done. Also, I get it. You know, we can't always be praying the rosary at every staff meeting when we actually have things that need to be talked about and decisions that need to be made. But we can't go too far in the other extreme and be overly pragmatic and and make the environment overly sterile. So I think that the invitation that you're offering here is uh, quite good, quite good. This is Dr. Mario, and I'm taking a quick break from my conversation with Dr. Tom Neal to invite you to read my blog at faithinmarriage.org backslash always hope, where I offer my thoughts and advice on marriage and finding hope in our modern culture. Okay, final sets of questions here. Sure, we can get into it now. Now, now we're going to get into it. If you're ready, I'm <laughs> <laughs> ready. <laughs> if we have, if we deep, haven't already, dig down deeper. We are recording this episode here, December late 2018. Uh, we are still in the wake of the summer of 2018, where the it's a reliving of 2002 again in terms of the scandal. The difference I find this time is with social media, 
maybe in the, in the 16 years, there are more people involved in the church ministry. I, or maybe I'm just older, but, but man, I, I just am having a lot of conversations with lay people about what the heck is going on and what the heck can we do to respond? And the, the conversation pretty much goes like this, if I can say generally. One is uh, an anger um, at both the sins of the, of, of the, the clergy specific, the ones who have committed the abuses of, of pedophilia or, or some other sense of um, phebophilia or sexual violation of those who are vulnerable uh, to them. Thinking of McCarrick and the seminary situation and that, which didn't involve minors. People are just angry that this was happening. Second thing is people are angry that this was covered up, right? And covered up for as long as it was. So even though new stories are emerging or new names are coming out that may have happened 50 or 16 years ago, people are still angry now because the comparison I like to make is if I'm working with a couple in, in marriage counseling, if 2002 is the beginning of marriage counseling where the husband says, I cheated, right? Um, and, my, and the wife says, okay, let's try to work on that. If 2018 is a year into counseling where the husband says, actually, it wasn't just one. It was really actually six, right? And it was six, it, none, none of them since we started counseling, but six that, that really happened. That wife's response would be very different a year later. She doesn't care. If it was sick, why didn't you tell me it was sick from the beginning, right? Why didn't you just tell me how bad it was from the beginning so we could have started? And now I feel like you've been lying to me, not just in the time that you're having the affairs, but now over the course of therapy, over the time of healing that we're trying to, to work together, right? That, that response of the bride is kind of what I hear in all these conversations with lay people about how, the, how do we really respond and what do I do with this? And so people feel, quite honestly, impotent in not knowing what to do? Do we write letters? Do we, do we petition? We can pray, certainly. Do we withhold money? Uh, do we fast? What, like, what else can we do? So two questions here. One is, what else can we do? Um, is Thoughts, I would love to, to hear yours on that. Um, but thinking about in the November um, situation where uh, in, in the 11th hour, Francis called or asked the, the USCCB to put a pause on the voting of the, 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 the code of conduct, the, the oversight committee, all the things that they were ready to vote for. And certainly people were upset by this. I was as well. The optics of it just kind of looked bad that the timing of it was there. But in you and I, as we talked about this, it seemed that one of the reasons, the central reasons of putting the pause and waiting for the February deliberations is about this question of what role then does the laity have in overseeing Episcopal kind of right. ordeals and, and doings. Um, and so I'm asking you two questions, really. Sure, One sure. is, what as a laity can we do to respond? And in two, what more can you say about that kind of pausing and, and this broader conversation that church needs to have about laity oversight uh, with, with Episcopal kind of feelings? Sure, that's superb. Two, two superb questions. So I'll start with the second one about uh, the November meeting and Francis's calling for a hold on the voting, um, which, again, these are, you know— the, one of the things that you realize as you begin to study, learn, research more and more is just how much there is to this. This is, this is layers and layers deep. It's years and years old. Uh, it has so much behind it and in it. And that can, of course, you know, set in a certain paralysis thinking this is, this is just so big, too big. 
uh, that I, I can't I can't even think about it or face it. But you know, but that that's not the way, of course, that you, you face anything in life. Because of course, you know, when you say, well, it's complicated. Well, that's pretty much pretty much true about anything in life that you face, whatever the challenge is, the situation you describe with a couple in counseling. It's complicated. There's obviously a long history behind this. There are obviously layers of reasons um, beneath this. There's no simple answer. There's no silver bullet. Uh, and I think sometimes, before I answer specifically the Francis question, um, we tend to look for silver bu- silver bullet answers. We want that one thing that's going to make everything seem okay, or that's going to fix the whole thing. And I think we need to always abandon that hope that we're going to have the one thing that's going to fix everything, the one answer, the slam dunk response. You know, whether that slam dunk response is saying, you know, this is what it means, or you know, I'm leaving the church, forget it. You know, those are very simplistic responses. Uh, understandable, because when you're in the heat of passion in the face of tremendous, terrible injustice and corruption, that's the way it works, of course. You, but, but you can't look for that, because if you put your hope in, in a simplistic response, uh, you will draw out at nothing but frustration and make no progress. So I think, you know, the best, I always say, you know, you try to give the charitable read to everyone, right? Unless they've given you reason to think otherwise. You try to give them what, what, what is the, the, the most helpful, generous reading of his, of his decision. Um, now, I don't know why he waited till the last hour. I don't really understand exactly what it was. I, having been in a leadership position myself, very small compared to that, but I understand that you make decisions that outside people who don't know what's happening make all kinds of judgments that you wish if they knew all that they that you know, they wouldn't say that, but you can't say anything because that's the way it works. You know, there are professional secrets and things that don't need to be revealed and shouldn't be revealed. So I understand that there's a lot more going on beneath that. I, and so the charitable read, as you said, is that Francis was saying to the bishops, look, before you go ahead and vote on on policies and procedures to deal with this, especially in how laity might be involved in the oversight uh, of bishops, not just of, of clergy or priests, but of, but of bishops. Let's step back and get a kind of global response, because this is not just a U.S. issue. This is a global issue. I mean, pretty much almost every part of the world, some more than others, have been affected by this. So in February, when all the bishops, representatives from the bishops' conferences come together to deliberate, my hope, uh, and I think this is Francis's chance, honestly, this is his shot. Uh, if he doesn't do something significant here with the bishops and come up with something that's significant that moves us forward very practically and forcefully, I think this may be a lost opportunity that you can't gain back. But I think he's saying, let's look to the future here with the bishops, get a global vision, kind of big a big picture that each then each conference can make decisions based on that as opposed to making your decisions, going to the conference, seeing that some of those decisions should actually be reversed or amended, and then having to do it again. So I, I think giving it that kind of read, I think it was it, it could be seen as a prudent response, even if you say he could have done it differently and better. Um, so that's how I would certainly see it. Um, as far as the lay, lay people's response, um, I think it, it's, again, no silver bullet answer to this. But I think... The layperson's response, in other words, the layperson who is engaged in their faith, committed to their faith, wants to follow Christ, wants to live out the mission of Christ every day in their lives, is striving to make sacrifices to do that, uh, and so forth, their response to this should be just like any cleric's response to this who tries to live out their their, their cler- clerical vocation, etc., or any bishop who tries to live out his Episcopal vocation, or any religious who, any one of the faithful who tries to live out the, the vocation that's been entrusted to them by Christ should experience the same outrage, uh, the same kind of disgust over the sin, 
but the same redemptive heart that Christ has. Because Christ, in the face of sin, doesn't just get disgusted and spit in the face of the sinner and say, how dare you do such terrible things. Um, He comes and he tries to, by every means possible, bring redemption, to liberate us from evil. That's what he does. So if if we are entrusted with the same mission that he on the cross uh, manifested so extraordinarily in the face of those religious and political leaders uh, who hated him and tried to destroy him uh, by every means possible and his friends who abandoned him, if he could love them to the very end redemptively, then we must do the same. Uh, it's, it's the same thing. And that doesn't mean, you know, uh, go ahead and just ignore it, you know, uh, say, okay, well, you know, we forgive you, let's just move on. It means redemption and, and salvation mean that God goes to the heart of the heart of hell, the heart of the sin, and blows it open from the inside. So if the institution, if certain elements of the institution have been so infected by this disease that those institutional elements have to be deconstructed or break down or whatever it is in order to be reformed and reborn and resurrected again, then the laity and the clergy should together do precisely that, pursue that goal together. Uh, all men and women of goodwill together in the church working for the, for the greater good. And we do that, right, using the priest, prophet, and king model. We do it in those three ways. We exercise our priesthood by praying like hell, by sacrificing, by fasting. If that's not going on, if we're not praying for the very people that we are speaking out prophetically against and condemning the actions of, if we're not praying and sacrificing for them and offering ourselves as a living sacrifice for them, we should keep our mouths shut. Because priesthood and prophetic life go together. You have to have a priestly backup to every prophetic utterance you you speak in in exposing evil. Uh, You have an obligation to also uh, beg God to redeem the evil. So that's what the priestly office is, right? And there's beautiful movements I've seen on the ground of people who are dedicating themselves to prayer and fasting and sacrifices for the reform of the church. Absolutely essential, necessary, sine qua non, right? Can't be done without it. Then we have the prophetic office, which again, as I said, is the speaking out, is the, 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 the writing of the letters and the speaking to the bishop and speaking to our pastor and, and, and keeping accountability and bringing transparency to institutions. That's all part of the prophetic role of the church, right? I mean, the church as a prophetic community should want more than anything else to have everything that is in the dark exposed to the light. That's the vocation of the prophet. That's the church's. So the church should model for the world, exposing things that are hidden in secret to the light. That's what we should want to do. Uh, so that that the laity, in, in collaborating with the clergy by every means possible, should advocate and work for that. Not only for the institution as a whole, but in my own life. I have to live like that every day. I have all kinds of stuff that needs that, that you know that, that I have to be able to to, to deal with. So so it, it 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 I think on those levels it's important. Let me also say for the prophetic uh, vocation that we have in the response to this. Um, is not just speaking out against the injustices and trying to expose them and trying to deal with the corruption of the institution, etc. But it's also uh, speaking the truth with charity, especially on social media. Um, I, I, I read social media I'm, and I follow it. You know, I'm Facebook because I'm old, but I, I follow uh, the, the, the conversations. And there's so many conversations that are absolutely not interested in the truth. They're interested in winning arguments, in making points, in virtue signaling, as Father um, Mike Schmitz says. You know, uh, they, they don't contribute anything to a real conversation that appreciates the nuance and complexity of what's going on here that's really trying to get at what the problem is and move it forward. 
Um, so I think just intelligent conversations that make good distinctions, that are careful, um, and your, 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 your goal is to bring the truth out, but in love, I mean, it's incredibly important. Um, good thinking out there um, in the public square and in social media and in the workplace you work in as you talk to people and they, they, they you know, say these things about the church that are preposterously uh, distorted and erroneous, we have a vocation and a role uh, of making sure we bring clarity into unclarity, truth into lies or partial, you know, partial truths that are, that are really lies. So I think that prophetic uh, vocation uh, stands. And by the way, I would say that we also, speaking of, of using our, our voice uh, for God, we need to be encouraging to our leaders. <laughs> There's so many, most of our leaders, right? Priestly leaders, ordained leaders are good men. And they need encouragement and they need support. Yeah, they need to be challenged, of course, but they need encouragement. They need to be part of a community. People they know support them and love them. Um, so I think that that's an important part. And then lastly, the kingly role, right? Just the, the stewardship we have over uh, the church's life and the way that we govern uh, the church. Uh, the laity have a share in that. We have a share in the way that the church is governed. You mentioned money. We give money to the church. That That, that, that is one way that we share in the church's uh, own life and, and, and institutional structure and governance. Um, and, you know, people can make decisions as to how they want to use money to speak a, a, a voice, you know, to make, to make a point. Uh, I'm not going to weigh in on that either way. Uh, but I think more important is that the laity take responsibility to become part of the church's life and structure, to invest their gifts, to bring the insights they have into the church so that the church can benefit from all of these extraordinary people who have all of these gifts and perspectives without which the church's leadership can't do what it's supposed to do well. So if most laity aren't investing themselves, time, talent, and treasure, as they say in stewardship language, investing themselves, then the church is impoverished. And if the church is impoverished and not having the kind of leadership um, that it, it could have if, if the laity were fully invested in the church's life, uh, uh, in the parish level, in the diocesan level, or wherever we're talking about, uh, then part of the problem is that uh, the church doesn't have what she's supposed to have as to what the Spirit has given her. And so her leadership is compromised, is weakened, uh, is anemic, because the lay faithful who are supposed to be there, offering what they have, um, have failed to do so, or have been held uh, from doing so by the clergy who prevent them from doing it, which also happens as well. So, so I think that that kind of sense of, of, a, of a full engagement by the laity in their priestly, prophetic, and kingly offices uh, in trying to help you know, bring the church toward reform um, is the only way this will ever move forward if we see ourselves as co-responsible uh, for the reform of the whole. And to bring this full circle then in our conversation, to let that focus be at the most local level, right? As we were saying with. Um, the, the particular, just not, not just graces or gifts, but the particular situations and circumstances and geography that we are called to, the very few of us are going to be called by the Vatican to go speak on behalf of the church or the conference of bishops in whatever country that we're in. But we all have the opportunity to focus on the most local level at our parish. How in our parish are we trying to work towards the reform of the church? How in my own local diocese am I trying to serve the bishop and to work in collaboration with him and the priests of the diocese to be able to bring about renewal and reform in the church and to keep our focus more on the local level? Because if each of us take responsibility and put our hands on the oar, right, at the place that God has called us to, then all of us collectively are able to then bring that richness and that life 
um, in that gift that, that God wants to bring to the church. Absolutely. That's it. The, 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 the need that we have to always act first in the area that's most under our control, right? That, that's what we're called, first of all. What, what's your, under your immediate influence and control, and where can you make things better, different, uh, just by exercising uh, the gifts you have and the abilities you have in that place? I think that's, that's absolutely right. I was just talking, Mario, the other day to a friend, a friend of mine up in Iowa again, uh, where I used to live with my family, uh, who uh, was listening one Sunday um, to a homily um, at the priest was talking about, you know, the, the need for renewal in marriage and family life. And he was preaching on marriage and, and just how difficult it is in the parish when he does things and has events and no one comes and he really, you know, wants to help people, but he doesn't, you know, know how. And he's kind of expressing his frustration. And uh, so this, this gentleman I know was sitting next to another man in a family who was there. And afterwards, the other man who was next to my friend said, you know, uh, Father's right. You know, I feel like we're always like, thinking the parish will do all this for us, you know, and, and we just kind of sit back in our, in our houses and, you know, watching sports and do what we needed to do. And, and the church will take care of this. And he said, but, you know, I really think we got to do this. So, so he started, he decided to start in his neighborhood, all these families that he's friends with and knows start uh, this, this, this kind of um, weekly gathering of couples and families together in his house where they would get together and, you know, have some food and drink and whatever they would do. And then they would have a little Bible study together and they would talk about their faith. Some of them were Protestants, some of them were Catholic. So he started to do this. And after a few weeks, it kind of, kind of caught some momentum. And, and it's been oh, almost a year since they started this. And he said since they started this now, it's become a, 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 a larger phenomenon within the parish territory and beyond where people start these neighborhood gatherings of families and couples together to do these Bible studies that are physical neighborhoods. Uh, and it's really having an effect. And a lot of these people have come back to their own practice of their own faith, have begun to participate in their own churches, whether those are Protestant or Catholic, uh, and become more involved. And so those parishes now are enriched um, because those people on the ground have taken responsibility uh, for their own faith at a very kind of right, right there in front of you level. So I think there's a tendency as you're, I think you're indicating there when, when we think about, you know, we don't want to think about the, I can't, you know, help affect Vatican policy or even USCCB, the bishops, you know, policies, but I can change my neighborhood. I can change my own family's practices. I can affect people in my workplace and begin to bring people to engage in, in, in you know, in bringing alive their faith which can open up gifts that then can enrich the parish and transform the community around us um, and, and, you know, and, and make, make the church's mission more vibrant. So I think taking ownership of what is immediately under your own influence and trying to bring uh, about uh, the realization of the kingdom right there in front of you, that, that's always in the end the best way to respond to any crisis, um, global or local or national. So I think that it's a superb point. Amen. Thank you, Tom. So this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. So as we are bringing it to a close, is there anything that you would like to plug? Any any works that you're doing? <clears throat> a website, <clears throat> blog, <clears throat> award-winning blog. Um, I'm Thank sorry, you. I got a little something here. I had to take frog care in of your it. Throat. Yeah, yeah, it was something. Well, was thank weird. you for the thank you, frog, for for coming. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So I I plug. So I've had for um, about. Uh, eight and a half, uh, nine years now, a blog that I post on fairly regularly called Neil Obstat, N-E-A-L, 
O-B-S-T-A-T, dot wordpress.com. And in, in there, I just take really what it is. It's, it's things that come across me in life, experiences uh, that come across me in life. I just reflect on them theologically. Uh, I reflect on them in the light of faith and try to bring alive what I see as the presence of God everywhere around us. You know, my, my fr- one of my favorite pithy phrases uh, comes from St. Therese, the little flower, just before she died, where she, she said, uh, just before she died, dying of tuberculosis, she said, tout es grace. Uh, grace is everywhere, right? Grace is everywhere. So my, my, my goal in, in that blog is to reveal to people that that fact and especially for the lay vocation, that's my, my kind of my, my core goal is to help lay people see everywhere uh, the revelation of God's glory. And I'll just I'll end with this. Uh, maybe I could say this is at the heart of my own sense of vocation in life um, as, as, a, as, a, uh, as a teacher and writer. The name of my blog, Neil Obstat, comes from the Latin words nihil obstat, which used to be, still is now sometimes, used to be uh, found in a lot of Catholic literature at the beginning, you'd open up the book and it would say that the, there was a nihil obstat uh, and an imprimatur, which were uh, guarantees or, or uh, you know, uh, assurances from a bishop or a theologian that this, this book or this literature uh, doesn't have anything contrary to the faith. So nihil obstat literally means let nothing stand in the way. In other words, let nothing stand in the way of this being published is the idea, nihil obstat. But I always felt that one of my vocations was to help to take away all the things that stand in the way of people discovering their own vocation in life, uh, discovering that God is with them in the most extraordinary way. And if only they could remove those obstacles, their whole world would be rocked, right? So, so my job is to pull away all of the obstacles. That, that's what I, I see that God has asked me to do. Uh, and it's been a privilege. So thank you for letting me mention that. Absolutely. And if I can use one of your uh, nihilisms to describe the podcast, the, the blog post, the blog, I should say, um, it's just superb. It's superb. <laughs> superb. <laughs> you know, that was a nihilism. I know I, I tried it to, like five times already in this I, podcast. I, I know I tend to use hyperbole uh, pretty often and I exaggerate and I, I, I'm also redundant. But but uh, there's a there's a guy who works in the seminary, Mr. Tim. He's a He's tremendous. He, he, he's been there forever and he works in maintenance. And one time I was walking down the hall and he yelled down the hall. He goes, look, a walking hyperbole. Because <laughs> <laughs> I always exaggerate everything. So there you go. It's beautiful. Exposed to the end. It's beautiful. Thank it's you. It's beautiful. And I say it in love, of course. All right, Tom Neal, final question. What gives you hope? Christ. Christ gives me hope. Christ's death and resurrection. The fact that uh, at the crucifixion uh, of God, at the darkest moment in all of creation's history, when creation itself slays God, in that very moment is the supreme appearing of divine glory. In other words, in the darkest and the worst places, the brightness of God's glory, his self-giving, self-wasting, self-sacrificing, merciful love uh, is ready to appear where sin abounds, grace super abounds for those who trust and who love the crucified God. So to me, every time I see darkness, that part of my faith gives me hope uh, that the God who descended into hell will meet me there and rise from the dead. Amen.
Couldn't have said that any better myself. Well, I pray that for the listeners that to use uh, Dr. Tom Neal's expression here, that this episode may have removed whatever obstacles you may have had in your own lay vocation, in your life and ministry and service to the church, and primarily in your life and ministry and service to your family and your communities. Um, Tom, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you so much, Mario. And thank you for the ministry, the work you do here, which is so incredibly important. Amen. We all journey together, co-work with the Lord. Amen. Amen. That's it. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Tom Neal about the lay vocation. He will be back. I promise you that. And please follow me on Facegram, Facegram, (laughs) Instabook, whatever it's called, at Dr. Mario Sacasa. Be good and God bless.